you know, for, for someone who says, look, I, I want the Sweden model. I want paid daycare. I want fully paid education. Okay. I think then the answer is okay. So you want a 25% national sales tax. And if the answer is no, then I think it's okay. So tell me how you're going to raise that kind of revenue without creating a disincentive for business investment, entrepreneurship, and business development more broadly. about what socialism is, what it isn't, and what socialism has been like in reality in the places where it's been implemented. I'm your host, Rosemary Fike, and today I'm joined by Jason Clemens. Jason is the Executive Vice President of the Fraser Institute and the President of the Fraser Institute Foundation. He's published over 70 major studies on a wide range of topics. He's published over 300 shorter articles, which have appeared in newspapers like the Wall Street Journal, Investors, Business Daily, Washington Post, Globe and Mail, and more. For the purposes of today's conversation, Jason is the co-author of Perspectives on Capitalism and Socialism, Polling Results from Canada, the United States, Australia, and the UK, which he wrote with Fraser Institute Senior Fellow Steve Loberman. Jason, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today about your work. My pleasure. Thank you. So I'm really looking forward to having this conversation because I think it's kind of a popular narrative that younger generations seem to be enamored with socialism. And so, but I think the, the story that you present in your work is a lot more complicated than that. And so this is a really important conversation to have. Um, and so I typically start by asking each guest to define what they mean by socialism for listeners, especially people who might be tuning in for the first time. And for this conversation, I think it's especially important. No, that's right. In fact, there's a whole section of our study which actually deals with this very question. So as an economist, I'm trained to think about socialism by the actual definition, which would be the, the government, well, technically the government owning the means of production, which um, simply means that the state, rather than entrepreneurs and business people and laborers, are making economic decisions. It's centralized in the government and they actually own businesses and industries. Uh, so that's the technical or di dictionary definition. Uh, however, as we know, uh, language evolves and and clearly what has happened is an evolution of what is meant by socialism. Uh, and that's certainly borne out in our polling data. Um, and as you've already uh, done a podcast with uh, Professor Jim Otteson, had a wonderful discussion. Uh, certainly now, when we talk about socialism, uh, particularly if we're talking about it versus capitalism, it's really a spectrum based on who's making economic decisions. Um, and so I think the modern definition of socialism is about the state making more economic decisions, um, whether that's providing more goods and services or providing a minimum income or redistributing more. Um, what it, I think, is less about is the government actually owning uh, businesses uh, outright. I know when I have these conversations with my students, uh, they seem 
surprised that the, the traditional definition of socialism means that there is no private property over um, the means of production. There are no private businesses. And when they seem to suggest that they're, they're interested in socialism, that is definitely not the kind of socialism that they're talking about. So before we dig into the details, can you tell me a little bit about what are the some of the big findings that came out of this research? Sure. Uh, so like the other uh, polls that we looked at, um, there is clearly a level of support for socialism. Uh, interestingly, both amongst all respondents, so that's all age groups, um, but more poignantly for uh, younger respondents. So if we look at the four countries and we look at all age groups, uh, the level of support for socialism ranges from 31 percent in the United States, which is the low, uh, to 43 percent in the UK. Uh, Canada was was one point back at uh, at 42 percent. If we only look at 18 to 24 year olds, which, again, we oversampled young people because uh, that was our our key point of interest the levels are higher. So, uh, for example, in the United States, the level of support for socialism goes from 31% for everyone to 45%. So almost half of respondents who are 18 to 24. Uh, the range of results are from the U.S. Uh, for 18 to 24-year-olds from 45% to 53% in Australia, with both Canada and the U.K. at or above 50%. So, Again, in, in general, we are seeing a decent level of support uh, for socialism across all age groups, but particularly for younger people. Um, and then when you break it up into the four age categories that we have the data for, it's almost a straight line down. Mm -hmm. So simply put, the older you are, the lower level of support uh, we see for socialism before we ask them how to define it, just the term socialism. So clearly there, there's an age effect. The older you are, the lower the support's going to be uh, for socialism. So that's really interesting. Do you have any thoughts about what might be driving that trend? Um, why it seems like the support for socialism declines with age? Yeah, I think there's a I think there's a couple things going on. One of which is is probably more important when we talk about if you want socialism, someone has to pay for it, uh, which I, I think we'll talk about later. But I, so I think a couple things are going on. One, if you're my age, so uh, slightly over 50, <laughs> um, we I vividly remember socialism. Like I, I remember watching newscasts of the Berlin Wall and people, you know, these these just horrific stories of people trying to escape from the Soviet bloc. Uh, I remember seeing newscasts about people defecting and and getting out because it was so bad. And so. I have memories of, and, and and remember asking teachers, like, how can a system be so bad that they have to build walls and not allow people to travel outside because they so yearn to escape? And then similarly, I remember the fall of the wall, and I remember the fall of the Soviet bloc and the Soviet Union and the joy and jubilation that we saw in people finally being able to travel and experience uh, freedom, for for lack of a better phrase, in, in, able, in, in other words, in being able to make self-determining decisions that under that social system they were prevented from. And so to me, the, the difference between younger people who don't live in that world, they, they just simply cannot go on the news um, or search the internet and look at real world examples that are prominent mm 
Um, I mean, I remember, I mean, for my age group, there were really two competing systems that had a substantial uh, portion of the population globally. Whereas now, I mean, essentially you've got China, which is a mixed system. Um, you've got Cuba and North Korea, but we don't have all of, uh, of the Russian or Soviet bloc countries competing. So I think for lack of a better phrase, I think there's a difference in the lived experience of people. The older you are, simply put, you remember what that experiment was like and the real hardship it imposed on those that, that suffered from it. So I think that that history or lack thereof is part of the explanation. I think the second one is just natural. I think it's uh, Churchill who made the quote that if you're uh, if you're young and you're not a socialist, you don't have a heart. And if you're older uh, and you're not a conservative, you don't have a brain. Um, and so I just think as a, as a young person, there is an ideal, uh, idealism um, about things like equality. I think there's an assumption that socialist systems are more equal when I think the experience is very different. But I think part of that is just the natural uh, idealism of young people. I think the third thing, though, which is the, the factor maybe we'll talk about later uh, when who's going to pay the price of socialism is that across most countries, younger people tend to work less. And if they work, they work less hours. So mm -hmm. a smaller percentage of young people are working part time. And if they work part time, it's less hours, which means they're not having the experience of payroll deduction and personal income taxes. And they're not directly seeing the cost of government activity in the form of taxation. And so I think this, which, again, is a larger trend of separating the cost of government in the form of taxes from whatever government does in terms of providing services or income transfers. That separation, I think, creates a natural constituency for people who want more government. And so I think that's part of what's going on uh, with young people. Yeah, I see that from myself. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm almost 40, so I vaguely remember you know, the, the fall of, the, of, of communism. And, you know, it's still there. Some of my cultural references are still in that Cold War era, but I also went to college at a time where lots of people wore Che Guevara t-shirts and kind of romanticized the whole process. And as I get older and own a house and have to do things like pay property taxes, I care a lot more about, you know, what what services my tax dollars are, are, are paying for. So, um, that makes a lot of sense. Do you think, uh, or are you concerned at all about this trend where over half of the population of, of young people do seem to at least have some level of support for socialism? Yeah, I think it's a great question. I think there's two, there's two answers. There's a short term and the longer term. Uh, the short term answer is my level of concern um, relates to the level of misinformation or misunderstanding, uh, particularly when people define socialism and they assume, and you know, the United States has a senator and, and several members of Congress who talk about adopting the Scandinavian model as their socialist model, but have not even a superficial understanding of that model because what they advocate for is markedly different than the Scandinavian model of, of what they call social or democratic yeah. socialism. So my concern would be people are saying we support X, but really don't understand what X is. 
I think the second concern, which we just frankly, we don't know right now, is if we fast forward 10 years and, and we look at someone who's 22 or 23 or 24 and they're now working more, are we still seeing this declining trend? So right now we see clearly the older you are, the lower the support for socialism. Will that continue or will the young people today who have a higher level of support than say 10 years ago, will that sustain itself into their 30s and 40s and 50s? Which if that's the case, then it seems to me we will see much more fundamental change in the role of government. Um, and the answer right now is we don't know. I mean, it, right. we will have to see that unfold over the next 10 or, or 20 years. So do you plan on doing a follow-up study down the road to kind of track you know, those, those trends? I think it's a great question. Uh, I think, I mean, we've certainly talked about it. Uh, the question for us would be, what's the state of policy in eight years or yeah. nine years or 10 years? Um, and equally as important is the degree to which we can capture people, which as you know, is difficult, who were predisposed to socialism 10 years ago. Right. Uh, because that, to me, that's part of the key is, is looking at people particularly young people uh, who, yes, said, I was very supportive of socialism when I was 25. I'm now 35 and I'm no longer supportive. That that That's going to be key in that type of research. So let's move on a little bit to kind of the second part of your study. So the first, you kind of look at um, the support for socialism and and really emphasize that it's younger populations that have the strongest support. And then you move on to talk about um, definitions of socialism. So can we can you give us a sense of what people really mean when they say they support socialism? Sure. So this was one of the things that differentiated our study from most of the other surveys that at least that we looked at uh, when we were uh, doing the original research, which is um, almost none of the surveys we looked at actually asked people, well, what do you mean by socialism? They just asked people, are you supportive of it? And so what's actually quite important is um, when you when we ask people are you defining socialism using the traditional definition that is the government owning businesses and industries such that the government rather than entrepreneurs and businesses direct the economy? So we really focused on who are making the economic decisions. Um, regardless of age or country, it doesn't get over 50%. Uh, so the highest level of support for the traditional definition of socialism was uh, 18 to 34 year olds in the UK at 46 percent. Um, if you look at people over 55, for example, uh, that ranges from 18 percent in the United States to uh, 35 percent in the UK. So again, across all age groups and all four countries, while there is a level of support uh, for the actual socialism that we went through, um, it certainly is not overwhelming. Again, none of them are over uh, 50 percent. We offered two other definitions. Um, so the, the second definition was government is going to provide more services. So health care, daycare, uh, K to 12 education, post-secondary education. Those results um, are just a magnitude higher than the support for traditional socialism. So um, 
if you look at 18 to 34 year olds, again, uh, support levels go from 56% in the UK to 72% in Australia. Um, you see much higher levels of support across all age groups. Uh, and in fact, all of the responses across all major age groups for all four countries is above 50%. So it, it gives you a sense of how much stronger the support for socialism as defined by government providing more services uh, is relative to the traditional definition of socialism. The third definition we offered was uh, the government would guarantee an annual income. So um, we basically phrased it as um, every person would be guaranteed a certain amount of income each year provided by the government. Um, the results for that are also quite strong, though not as strong as defining it as government providing more services. Um, those results, uh, depending on the age group, are roughly from low 50s to mid 60s or so. Uh, the one exception is people over 55 in the United States, where it was only 35% who defined socialism as a guaranteed annual income. So essentially, when we think about how are the respondents defining socialism, most are defining it as government providing more services, slightly less government providing an annual a guaranteed annual income and then way down would be uh defining it as the government actually owning industries and uh, and businesses which frankly is 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 quite in line with people like senator bernie sanders and a number of congress people in the united states and in fact socialists here in canada and the uk who are not advocating for government taking over industries. They're advocating for the government to do a whole lot more in providing services, um, and in some cases, providing a guaranteed annual income. I know when I was in college and considered myself a supporter of socialism, I was certainly thinking of um, the government being like a bigger social safety net and, and targeting things like inequality. Um, so that, that at least kind of fits with my experience and with the conversations I've had with my students. Um, but that's interesting because it kind of makes it difficult to have conversations uh, from, you know, academics versus, you know, policy people versus the average person. Um, we might just be talking past each other if we continue to use this traditional socialism language. Um, do you have any thoughts about that? No, I think that's entirely correct. That that there's a real risk slash maybe even more than a risk, a probability that when one set of people is saying, well, socialism, we have real world evidence that it doesn't work. I mean, pick your country, pick your time period. Um, and here are all the reasons, whether it's control or knowledge or incentive problems that centrally planning economies just doesn't work and the other person is saying well but that's not even what i'm talking about mm -hmm. um and so you know in many ways i think this is kind of the classic let's first define our terms before we have our discussion um which i wish we were in a world where that was easier to do <laughs> but uh i do think when we're when we're having this debate and people throw out the term socialism uh it's really about how are we defining that and I mean, I can just share an interesting experience we had, which uh, we wrote about um, six or seven months ago, a piece asking the question whether Canada's prime minister, uh, current prime minister, is a socialist. 
And we really were trying to play on this idea of an evolving definition of socialism, which is using the current or sorry, using the traditional definition. No. But if you use the modern definition, then he clearly has a predisposition towards socialism because he's expanded programs, created new programs, as is in line with the definition for modern socialism. So I, I do think your insight is an important one about if you're going to have a, a discussion about socialism, you better start with what do you mean by socialism? Every single episode of this podcast series starts with how are we defining socialism for exactly that reason. Uh, now let's turn our focus to people's opinion regarding how do we finance socialist systems. Um, what kind of options were survey respondents presented with and, and where did they seem to fall regarding those options? Sure. So this is the only survey that we're aware of who actually attached a cost of, so who's paying for this? Um, so we purposefully designed it in a way where there were four options. Two of the options um, were designed so that most respondents, if not almost you know, 99% of respondents, would interpret it as someone else is going to pay that tax. And then two options where it was designed that clearly the respondents were going to pay the tax. So the four options were a new wealth tax on the top 1%, higher personal income tax rates, but only on the top 10%, higher personal income tax rates on everyone except for very low income. And then depending on your country, um, it was either a new national sales tax or a higher national sales tax. So. Uh, this is important for listeners in the United States because obviously you don't have a national sales tax. So the wording was the introduction of a 20% national sales tax in the United States. In Canada, uh, sorry, in Canada, it was worded as a much higher national sales tax because while we have a national sales tax, it's actually very low at only 5%. And then in Australia and the United Kingdom, it was worded as a much higher national sales tax because they both have a, a fairly high national sales tax now um the results are actually quite telling um and again it, it goes back to this idea of separating out my preference for more government activity more government spending versus i don't want to pay the cost of that decision mm -hmm. so um overwhelmingly uh, again regardless of age group or country uh, overwhelmingly, the support was for the two tax options where most, if not all, respondents would not interpret those as being higher taxes for themselves. So uh, for a wealth tax, for example, again, uh, a brand new wealth tax only on the top 1%, support ranged from 66% in the United States to 72% in Canada and Australia, which, uh, you know, those over 70% is, um, is quite high when you're looking at, at survey data. Uh, you see a bit of a bump down uh, when we look at higher personal income taxes, but only for the top 10. That ranges from 53% in the United Kingdom to 59% in Canada. Again, that's across uh, all ages. You, you then see a pretty pronounced drop for higher personal income taxes for most citizens. Um, that's only 31% in Canada to a high of 39% in Australia. And then, frankly, the, the results just collapse. When we look at a national sales tax, uh, support for that across all ages is 16% in Canada. Uh, interestingly, to 29% uh, in the United States. Uh, the reason I say it's interesting is because you don't have a national sales tax. Yeah. 
So for the we three have countries, sales here, taxes, different states have different, but we don't have anything on the national level. That's right. Yeah. So you know, for in Canada, the the national sales tax is the most hated tax because we see it on everything we purchase. We see that little line that says GST. So it was interesting that the U.S. had the high. I mean, again, not not high in an absolute sense, but higher relative support for national sales tax in the sense that you don't have a national sales tax. And as you know, there are several states that have no state level sales tax. Yes. Yes. I, I'm from Pennsylvania. So we had no state sales tax on a lot of things. Um, so, so it is interesting to me, right? Because Socialism sounds nice if it's a free lunch, but if we have to actually put our money where our mouth is, people are are less keen to do that. I think that's uh, kind of the the heart of the Churchill quote that you that you brought up. When you're older and you're paying for these things, it's a lot harder to to commit to those ideals. Um, so do you have any thoughts about kind of the patterns you observed with regards to the, this support, um, these financing schemes? Well, you certainly, I, I think one thing jumps out and it's, it's actually a broader concern, I think for a lot of economists, certainly for myself, um, which is this separation of what I want the government to do from who's going to pay it. And um, and again, so we've got fairly high support, uh, you know, mid to high 60s on we define socialism as government providing more services. We've got decent level of support for uh, socialism generally. But when it comes to who's paying it, particularly as economists, the most efficient way to do it would be a national sales tax. It's just plummeting in terms of 16 to 25, 29 percent are willing to pay that national sales tax. What they want is someone else to pay for it. And so this disconnect or this separation of, I want A, B, and C, but I don't want to pay for A, B, and C, um, I think is not only disconcerting from a public policy perspective, but I think critically, it's not the Scandinavian model. And so when you have political leaders in the United States, Canada, and the UK, and, and probably Australia, when you have them advocating for quote unquote social democracy based on a Scandinavian model, and then you look at the details of what they're proposing and it's not the Scandinavian model. Um, I worry about young people saying, well, no, but this works in Denmark or this works in Sweden. And you're like, yeah, but it doesn't because what you're advocating for is fundamentally different than the Swedish or, or Danish model. So um, I think that's a really important issue when it comes to policy. Uh, and in fact, I mean, we we see this in other polls uh, that have been done in Canada uh, and I'm sure in other countries where, uh, and in fact, I think it's a major problem in polling where you say, you know, are you supportive of a new service or expanded program? And you get the results, but you've never said, right, but what's the cost of doing that? Yeah. Um, and as economists, uh, you, you can say you want a whole bunch of stuff, but unless you're willing to pay the price of those actions, um, I'm not sure we've put a lot of uh, a lot of faith or validity in those responses because they're essentially based on an assumption that there's no trade-off, that right. I can do these things in a costless way. Right. That's one of the things I was thinking as you were talking, um, you know, in a different episode of this, this podcast, I do have a conversation with Johan Norberg, 
about the Scandinavian model and and what that really entails. And I think the the biggest thing that I learned is that it's it's finance. Basically, you're you're paying for it yourself over the course of of your lifetime. You're you're redistributing to yourself during times when you are are lower income earner from when you're higher income earner. And and I don't think that that is is very clear to many many people who say they support the Scandinavian model. Um, I also love to point out to my students who talk about Denmark and, and Scandinavian countries, I, I tell them, you need to look at the Economic Freedom of the World Index. A lot of those countries rank very highly, sometimes higher than the United States and Canada on that index, um, showing that the vast majority of decisions are being made through the market process, not through the political process. Yeah, I, I think you've raised two really, really important points. Uh, so the first, if you look at Denmark and Sweden, the, the two major taxes that they rely on to finance their much higher levels of, of government spending, and they and they do have higher levels of government spending. Um, one is national sales tax at 25%. They both have a 25% um, called a VAT. It's a national sales tax. Mm -hmm. That's important because the support for national sales taxes we just talked about is very low across all four countries, across all four, uh, sorry, all uh, all age groups. The second tax that they rely on are fairly high personal income tax rates that are applied at relatively low levels of income. Mm -hmm. So, so the, the reason that second part is really important is that in Canada and the United States, and to some extent the UK, we have high tax rates, but they don't kick in until very high levels of income. So in Canada, it's about 176,000 US, depending on your state, um, top rates can kick in at about 500,000 US. In Sweden, for example, it's about 76,000 US. So in, in a country like Sweden, middle-class workers, many middle-class workers have part of their income at the top tax rate. Mm -hmm. And so as, as Johan uh, wrote in his study and apparently uh, talked about in the podcast, it really is essentially you are lending to yourself when you're young, you're paying it back when you're working, and then you're drawing down uh, when you are older. And so that model is just so different from what is being advocated in country Western countries like Canada and the United States, where it's we want all those programs, but we don't want a national sales tax and we don't want higher personal income taxes for average workers, we just want a very small group to pay for it. As if one, there's enough money there to pay for those things and two, that there's no incentive effects for those people. Yes, I can just imagine people fleeing the country to avoid those taxes if they're very targeted on a specific population. No, absolutely. I, I mean, in fact, Canada is going through that right now. In, in the last eight years, um, we now have eight provinces, which are the equivalent of U.S. states. Eight provinces now have a top rate over 50 percent. And what we've seen in the last 10 years is an exodus of investment capital, which, you know, investment capital is one of the easiest ways to increase living standards because it makes us more productive workers or helps us become more productive workers. Um, and so that has a real price in terms of our living standards, both currently uh, and going forward. I think the other thing that you raised, which is really important, is this idea that Sweden and Denmark are generally more socialist. 
um, which as you point out, when we look at the economic freedom uh, ratings, which look at five different components of economies, uh, both Sweden and Denmark rate very highly on four of the five measures. Where they do poorly is on the amount of government spending relative to the rest of the economy. And again, both countries spend more than most other uh, industrialized countries, but they finance it very differently. Uh, and one of the interesting things, I and I wasn't fully aware of this until we did the work, both Denmark and Sweden have fairly strict rules on balancing their budgets and limits on the amount of government debt that can be accumulated. You know, the U.S. right now is one of the worst industrial uh, countries in terms of national debt. Canada, um, frankly, has eroded its position. That was uh, we were in excellent position, um, sort of 20, 2005, 2008. Excellent position. We've eroded it since then. Uh, UK is certainly accumulating debt. So there's many facets of the Sweden and uh, Denmark models um that again are just fundamentally different than what is either in place in the four western countries we looked at or i think probably more importantly what's being advocated by those who want quote unquote socialism to be in introduced in those countries maybe next time our senators that are supportive of socialism bring that up we should respond by saying well then adopt a, a you know a balanced budget amendment um, I can't imagine anybody in the United States supporting that. I last time I looked at the National Debt Clock uh, website, I almost had a heart attack. We're not Japan, but oh, it's ticking up all the time. Yeah, and I, I do think that's an important uh, point, uh, Rosie. No, you know, for, for someone who says, look, I, I want the Sweden model, uh, you know, so I want paid daycare. I want fully paid education. Okay, I think then the answer is okay. So you want a 25% national sales tax. And if the answer is no, then I think it's okay. So tell me how you're gonna raise that kind of revenue without creating a disincentive for business investment, entrepreneurship, and business development more broadly, which means you, you can't do a wealth tax. And frankly, you can't do higher marginal tax rates on the top 10%. So if it's not a national sales tax, which I think the research is clear is the best way to raise revenue. How are you raising that revenue? And by the way, you can't just borrow it like you're doing now because Denmark and Sweden don't allow that. Hmm. Huh. No such thing as a free lunch. I wish people would learn this. <laughs> exactly. I wish there were sometimes. <laughs> So I know that the sample of countries you looked at was pretty small, so it might be difficult to answer a question like this, but it did seem to stand out to me that support in the U.S. significantly lower than, or noticeably no, lower than in other countries, and the U.K. seemed to have you know, much higher level of support. Is there anything that you can think of, maybe historically, institutionally, socially, that that might be driving that difference across the countries? I, I think there's really two things that at least when we were when we saw the results, trying to better understand uh, the the American results. So, I think one, and it, it marginally bears out when you look at some of the regional data, and I stress marginally plays out. Um, the, I would say the Southwest of the United States has a real life example, particularly if you're in a state like Florida, where there's a real sensitivity to Cuba, which mm -hmm. remains a 
technically a socialist country. And, right. you know, there's a lot of people who lived through uh, some pretty tumultuous times with the, the uh, boat rafts um, leaving Cuba and going to Florida. So it, I think unlike many other countries, there are parts of the United States that actually have a fairly sensitive socialist country very close by where they can point and say, is this really what we want? So I think that's one. I think secondly, though, uh, and this is uh, harder to measure, but the U.S. clearly has a much deeper history of entrepreneurialism. In fact, it's part of your founding as a country um, relative to what are three other countries that were all part of uh, the uh, the British um, monarchy and remain part of the British monarchy. Um, and so those countries never broke away to be more self-determining the way the United States did. And again, I, I think that spirit of entrepreneurialism within the United States is just more embedded. Uh, and I think if you look at patent data and, and uh, business startup data, that bears itself out that, you know, mm -hmm. one of the real strengths of the U.S. economy is the degree to which it is entrepreneurial compared to other countries. So I think part of that, um, and again, these aren't huge differences between the United States and the other three. Um, but again, when, when we looked at that, we thought those two things might be playing out uh, as potential explanations for, for some of the differences. Yeah, I think bringing up Cuba, that, that seems right. It's a more salient type of example to a lot of people in the U.S. It's really hard to, to get data and information from kind of our modern day socialist countries. Um, we don't get a, get a sense of what's going on in North Korea, but you're right, if you're living in Florida or you grew up in the United States in the 90s and early 2000s, you have examples of people risking their life to escape socialism. Um, yeah, and I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, yeah, I mean, I, I think it's an important insight because I, I wouldn't downplay, and it's certainly my own experience of the, the power of that image of people risking their lives to leave a country because it is so oppressive. And, you know, I mean, I I just, the, the, the amount of memories I have uh, as a young person seeing those things and then the fall, um, if you're in Florida or Texas or, or other states that are close to Cuba, that's still something you see. I mean, it's not weekly. It's certainly not the early 80s, right. uh, which was a borderline crisis. But it is a proximate example of, quote unquote, how good can a system be if you're not allowed to leave it? Right. One of the things that you also ask in the study that's not part of the, the main results, but you also ask people about their support for communism and fascism, um, which was kind of interesting and a little bit scary when I looked at some of the responses. Can you talk about that? Yes, I can. I, I would agree with you. Um, so there was, there was really two aspects of the data. So one was there actually was quite a gap between the the level of support for communism and social sorry communism and fascism between 18 to 30 uh, 18 to 24 year olds and everyone else um when we look at all age groups the results for fascism were four to nine percent which was a bit surprising to be uh, frank i thought it'd be lower uh, for communism it was six to 14 percent which again 
was a bit surprising. Um, what was more worrying, uh, at least for us, uh, the authors, is when you look at the results for just 18 to 24 year olds. So support for uh, communism was 16 to 24 percent. Um, and perhaps even more worrying uh, for fascism, it was 10 to 16 percent. Now, the one thing I would say, which I'm we're admitting, if we could go back and redo the, the survey, what we would do is ask them to define those terms the same way we did in socialism, because I think um, one of the one of the things we we wish we had done is gotten data about how are you defining capitalism? Because I, as an example, I think some of the respondents conflate status quo with capitalism and, and like none of the cronyism four type of exactly. And, the, and exactly. And then what are you defining as communism? What are you defining as fascism? But even just the fact that you're getting levels of support for fascism, regardless of how they're defining it, um, is certainly is certainly worrying. Yeah, that that is the thing that jumped out at me. And, you know, just living in the United States, um, you know, the political climate is is weird. And, and I can definitely see um, see some evidence, at least anecdotal evidence that, that people yeah. seem more favorable to something that is just so coercive and, and harsh for people. Um, before we wrap up today, I want to just give you a chance. Is there anything that we didn't really talk about or touch on that you think is important to bring up any kind of final words? No, no, I, you've, you've done a wonderful job as always, Rosie, covering, uh, covering the full gamut of the study. So thank you. <laughs> well, thank you. Um, do you have any recommendations for, for books or additional studies or podcasts or anything that our listeners can dig into if they want to learn more? Sure. Yeah, for sure. So um, The Commanding Heights, it's a bit old, but uh, it's a book by Daniel Jurgen and, and Joseph uh, Stanislaw, which is one of the best. It's easy to read, but just a wonderful book about the reality of uh, central planning and socialism and then the transition to market, market democracies. Um, I think the more recent book, Why Nations Fail, uh, by uh, Darren Asamuglu and James Robinson. Again, I, I would quibble with some aspects of it, but I think generally it's a, it's a pretty good book about why do some uh, jurisdictions and cities and countries prosper while others fail. And I think a lot of the things we've we've talked about, um, both in the larger project, uh, but also just uh, here today, are in the book. And then lastly, uh, as you know, I'm a, I'm a big fan of Joseph Schumpeter. Um, I, I think his book, uh, Capitalism, Socialism and Democracy, where interestingly enough, he predicted that capitalism would not survive, even though he was one of the quintessential scholars to nail the nature of capitalism in that he identified entrepreneurialism as a core component of a capitalist system. Uh, but nonetheless, he didn't think it would survive. And what's interesting is the reasons he thought capitalism wouldn't survive, I think in some ways are starting to play out right before our eyes. So uh, for people interested in this idea of socialism more broadly, uh, I would certainly recommend uh, the Schumpeter book. So thank you so much, Jason, for your time and for this research, which is incredibly important. Um, I hope the listeners today have enjoyed the conversation as much as I have. Um, and I hope that I get a chance to talk to you again soon. My pleasure. Thank you so much, Rosie. 
Thanks for joining us for the Realities of Socialism podcast, where we take a deep dive into the consequences of socialism as it was imposed on tens of millions of people during the 20th century. For more information, including infographics, free books, and more podcast episodes, visit realitiesofsocialism.com.